Well, thank you so much. Greetings to you from RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary in Atlanta. It is, um, it's a very long and old relationship between our seminary and First Pres in Macon. Um, you may or may not know exactly how developed, but this church is one of the biggest supports to our ministry in Atlanta. RTS is particular ministry to Georgia. Um, and there's been a long time where people who are even chancellors and other pieces of RTS's history have been out of First Present Macon. So greetings from the school. We are grateful for you and for your ministry. And I'm grateful that I have the chance to come and open the word with you this morning. So we are going to be looking at the book of Esther. And that may seem like an odd thing to look at, for the third day of what's been a conference about how we interact with our culture, which is increasingly more hostile to some of the things we hold dear in our faith. But stick with me, because this is a story of how to see God working even when we don't see him working. And that's really where most of our days live, isn't it? This is another story of the Jews living in exile. It's a bit later than Daniel 1 through 6, which we looked at on Saturday, if you were here. Or some number of years later now, living in the nation of Persia, in the kingdom of Persia, because the Persians had conquered the Babylonian Empire. We're going to be reading starting in chapter 3, so let me summarize very briefly for you chapters 1 and 2. So Persian monarchs, like many ancient kings, were fairly notoriously capricious. And in this case, King Ashuerus, it meant that he had gotten rid of his wife because she had refused to come and dance in front of him and his drunk friends. And he decided to hold auditions, if, if you will, for the role, to find a more compliant lady who might take her spot and be what he thought a wife actually should be. So they rounded up every beautiful girl in the capital city of Susa, and they took them into the king's harem. And there they trained these girls in how to please the king, so to speak, and then each girl would have one night where she would go meet the king, and he would try to decide if she was pleasing enough to be his next wife. Now, there are Jews who were living in the city there, including a man named Mordecai and his cousin Esther. Her parents had died, and he was raising her. And when the king's order to find a girl who might be his new wife went out, she was among those taken into the harem. And in fact, Esther was picked to be the new queen because she was more pleasing to the king than any of the other women. And through all this, Mordecai forbade her to let her faith be known. Now then after that, we pick up in the book of Esther, chapter 3, verse 1. And in your ESVs in the pew, that should be on page 411. Now after these things, King Hashuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadathea, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. 
Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month, until it landed on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadathea, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, and the people also. Do with them as it seems good to you. And skipping down to verse 6 of chapter 4, the word goes out throughout the entire kingdom. Mordecai, among many others, hears of it. And then Mordecai sends a message to Esther. And picking up in verse 6, Hatak, who was one of Esther's servants, Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in the front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. And this is the Lord's word. Let's pray. 
God, our Father, would you see fit via the Holy Spirit to open our hearts and minds that our minds may understand these words, that our hearts will be soft to them, that we would see Jesus. We pray you would do that for us in the name of him, Jesus, who is our Lord and Savior. Amen. My daughter has a friend who has a fast-growing, inoperable brain tumor. That would be awful in any situation. But it's particularly tragic because my daughter's in first grade. Now, frustratingly, as a pastor, I've had a lot of experience with these things. Not more than any other pastor, but it's just a fact that tragedies and difficulties are common. Life has brutally hard things in it, and often they come on us with very little warning. And it's often been said, and it's true, that things like this drive people and families one of two ways, either towards God or away from him. Now, people either say, why, God? And when they can't answer that question, because you rarely can, they decide that God must not really be there. Or maybe even worse, if he is there, he must not really be good. Because the situation hurts so much, it's so bad. Or other people, in the same circumstances, see God's hand in all the little ways that he did sustain them, and the little situations and the things that make it better than it could have been, the ways he enabled them to endure what is sometimes almost unimaginable difficulty. Why the difference? I mean, after all, the people in question look exactly the same, and their circumstances look exactly the same. Yet one responds with more faith in God, and the other with a loss of faith. Why the difference? Well, here's the thesis. The book of Esther helps us understand this. Because the book of Esther tells us that we can see God working even when we can't see him working. That Esther helps us understand this because it tells us we can see God working even when we can't see him working. Now we'll look at that under three points. One, we get in trouble. Two, it looks like we're on our own. And three, God is there even when we don't see him. First, we get in trouble. That's certainly true for them. Look at the text. Recognize that Esther and Mordecai and all the Jews with them face a formidable enemy here. Just look at the passage, verses 1 and 2. They tell us that Haman is the most powerful man in the kingdom other than the king himself. And don't think of that like you're in the U.S. where we have a basically functioning rule of law. If Haman wants them dead, they will be dead before morning. Very few people will know, and the people who know can't stop it, nor will they care to stop it. The only thing that saves Mordecai's life is that Haman is greedy and wants to kill all of Mordecai's people, not just him. Now, if that's not enough, look at verse 9. Haman can drop 10,000 talents of silver into the king's treasury, or at least says he can, and it's believable enough that the king doesn't laugh him out of it as part of a bribe to make this happen. To put that in context, a talent weighs 75 pounds. 
So he is offering 750,000 pounds of silver if he can do this. So their enemy is not just powerful, he's rich, hugely so. Even beyond that, verse 10, he's given the king's signet ring, which signified all the king's authority. If you have the king's signet ring, your word is like his. If even that's not enough, verse 15, it turns out Haman and the king are drinking buddies. Look even at chapter 4, verse 11. Esther, supposedly the king's wife and favorite, hasn't been called to the king in 30 days. Now, the way it worked back then is she came when he called for her. Otherwise, she stayed home. And she's probably wondering why. You know, is he, is he unhappy with me? And then, when Mordecai's message came back, she'd have to be wondering if she'd been found out. If maybe why the king hasn't asked for her is because he knows that she's a Jew. And after all, Haman has turned the king against the Jews. So she has every reason to worry that if she does go in there, she will be killed. They face a formidable enemy, and facing him, it sure seems like they're out there on their own. Nobody's coming to help them. Seems like time is running out fast, and they've got to figure a way out of this themselves. Now, truth is, they've been living that way for a fairly long time. It's easy to think that because somebody's in the Bible, they must be moral, or they must be doing well, but the Bible's a lot more real than that. It shows real people like you and like me, people who rely on ourselves and on our own talents, not on God. People who sometimes have faith, but often try to go it on their own, and people for whom faith is often a last resort. And even then, they're not sure it's going to work. Look back at chapters 1 and 2. For those of you who were here yesterday, think how different this is than the chapters from Daniel we looked at. Esther hasn't avoided the king's food like Daniel did. In fact, she hasn't done anything different from the culture around her. She's hidden her faith. Nobody knows she follows Yahweh. In chapter 4, verse 12, Mordecai threatens that she'll be found out, and the whole point is nobody knows yet. In fact, if you were to take the word Jew out of this book and substitute the name of any other ethnic group, you'd have no reason to even think that this was biblical literature at all. That's hardly the end of the moral compromise. Esther was taken into the pagan harem where she was taught how to be pleasing to the king. Chapter 2, verse 9, she was the best student there. She took their advice. She did exactly what the chief eunuch told her, verse 15. And then she went to meet the king and pleased him more than anybody else, verse 17 all the while hiding who she really was. And Mordecai, verse 10, told her to do it this way. Even Mordecai's refusal to bow down might have been proud, not pious. Now, chapter 3, verse 4 that we read implies that Mordecai said it was because of his Judaism. But it's not entirely clear that that's true, that his Judaism would have forbidden him to bow down to the king. After all, the Jews were free to give appropriate reverence to an earthly king so long as they didn't worship him. They were bowing to King David all the time in the Bible. So there's the disturbing thought that even Mordecai's refusal to kneel may have been out of arrogant pride, not out of any faithfulness. 
doesn't that all start to sound a lot like us? We get in trouble. We face enemies we can't beat. You know, sooner or later, you run into that rival at work or that competitor company that has all the cards. Sooner or later, you learn the dragon is just too strong, and sometimes he eats the knight. You know, nice guys don't always finish last, but sometimes they do. Or maybe the dragon's medical. One of the few things as a pastor I could possibly promise you in this world is that unless Jesus comes back, you're going to die first. Only question is how and when. So that late-stage cancer, sometimes the enemy's really fierce. Or the spot in life you're in, the marriage that seems to have terrible odds of succeeding. The child who's walked off from living the way that he or she should. We get into troubles. Every life does. And if we're really honest, we're not so lily white in it all either. Sometimes bad things happen because it's simply a fallen world. But in other times, we've resembled Esther and Mordecai a whole lot more than Daniel. Second point, when we're in such a situation, it looks like we're on our own. I mean, again, this is true for them, right? Do you notice that God never shows up in anything they say? Do you notice how unsupernatural the whole book seems? They're just living life. A problem comes up because of a quarrel. Suddenly it's a threat to their very lives and the lives of all God's people in the known world at the time. And yet God doesn't just seem to be around or involved. This is a big deal, like we said. Haman intends to pull this off, and he can. And yet God seems asleep at the wheel. No mention of him. No sign. It looks like they're completely on their own to try to get out of this. And isn't that how things seem so often in our own lives? You're diagnosed with cancer, and no angel shows up to tell you it's going to be okay. You have a horrible car wreck, and the only people who come are the police. You get downsized. The unemployment line looks just the same for you as it does for anybody else. Life looks so, well, ordinary. And difficulties come, even disasters, and it's not like God comes flying in with an army of angels to fix our problems, even the really bad ones. Cancer means we go to the oncologist. The auto accident means you go to the insurance company. The blow-up means you go to a counselor. Whatever your problems are, and they differ person by person and family by family, it so often seems like God's not that interested, like he's not going to act and we're on our own. And that means we try to fix it on our own. That was certainly true for them. What's Mordecai's first answer? Chapter 4, verse 1, the part we skipped over, he mourns the disaster. And then he tries to fix things by playing the only card he has, verse 8, Esther's relationship to the king. The only thing that can possibly look like faith in any of his comments is verse 14. If you keep silent at this time, relief will come for the Jews from somewhere else. But even that's part of a threat to get Esther to act. Now, Esther asks them to pray in verse 16, so they're not completely faithless. But prayer is really only even invoked after the course of action is chosen. And even after that, for the whole rest of the book, they're just playing the same game, trying to get an angle, trying to make their way out of trouble by their own wits. And again, isn't that so much like us? Just like Mordecai and Esther, we try to get out of our own things by our own skills. I mean, 
Think about it. Something goes wrong at work. Is your first instinct to pray? Mine's not, and I work at a seminary. If I do remember to stop and pray, it's usually only because I mess things up worse trying to fix it first. It's like I'm an animal caught in a net, and the more I thrash around, the tighter it gets. Truth is, when work's going wrong, we tend to default to our own skills or find somebody to fix it. When family's going wrong, we tend to try to figure out how to make somebody else change. When marriages are going bad, we think we need to come up with a magic bullet that will somehow fix it. Our first instinct in life is to rely on ourselves. And maybe, maybe you're a lot holier than I am, but that's me again and again and again. Self-reliance. It's a big one for me. Except it's so profoundly unbiblical. When it's bad, we think it's up to us because God doesn't seem to be doing much. But here's the great news, point three. God's there even when we don't see him. Now, first off, there's, note that there's more going on in this passage than you might see at first blush. Look in the passage at chapter 4, verse 7. When Haman decides to destroy the Jews, they cast poor, which are lots, in front of him to decide which date to use to exterminate the Jews. To understand this, you need to understand that poor casting the lots was a means of divination. What Haman is doing is consulting his gods to find the best time, the time when his gods would most favor the efforts to destroy the Jews. So though what's going on seems so ordinary, such a normal thing, it's really not. Haman's engaging the Jews in a contest of gods. And he's consulted his gods, who he thinks are stronger, to tell him how and when to destroy God's people. That's what he's doing when he casts the lots, the Purim. He's showing that however ordinary it looks to you and to me as a reader, he knows it's a contest of gods. He's consulting his because he thinks they're in control. That's also what you do when you pray, you remember. Consulting your God. And this is the amazing, encouraging, wonderful point of this book. The whole point of this book is that God really is deeply in control, even when we can't see it. Those prayers are heard. The amazing thing about Esther in the Bible, God's not mentioned in the book, not once. The book looks entirely secular, so much so that some rabbis argued it shouldn't even be in your Bible. But some others argued that it's actually important at the level of the Pentateuch. Well, what gives? How does that happen? Well, God's never mentioned in the book, but his handprints are all over it. Look at the amazing amount of coincidence that leads them delivered for the rest of the book. Let me give you a brief 30-second tour of the rest of the chapters. The reversals are amazing. At the end of chapter 5, Haman plans to hang Mordecai on a gallows he built. And he goes to the king to ask permission in chapter 6. The king just happens to have been lying awake at night. He happens to ask for the royal annals to be read to him. Maybe it'll put him to sleep. The person reading just happens to open to a section that mentions a time Mordecai uncovered a plot and saved the king's life. The king just happens to think to ask, wait, did we ever reward that guy? Haman just happens to walk in right then. The king happens to say, hey, Haman, what should we do for a really good guy that the king loves? Haman happens to misinterpret it and think that he must be talking about him. Haman suggests an answer, and so it just happens 
that the king causes Haman of all people to lead Mordecai through the streets of Susa, honoring him. Then in chapter 7, the second of Esther's two banquets, the plot gets exposed. The king is furious. He goes outside to cool down. He comes back in right as Haman is throwing himself at Esther's feet to beg for mercy. She happens to be lying down to eat, which is the way they ate. The king happens to misinterpret it and think that Haman is attempting to molest the queen. And so Haman happens to get hung on the very gallows he built. And one day he goes from the most powerful man in the kingdom to dead on a gallows. Do you really think the author intends you to read all of that as coincidence? No. To read that as coincidence takes more faith than to read what the author is actually saying, that God is in control, that he's active even when we can't see him, that he's controlling everything. So when things just happen to break your way, it's time to quit moving on without stopping to thank him, because God in his providence controls everything, all of these supposed coincidences. He's most active when we see him least. Truth is, he's there to be seen when we realize that none of the ordinary is really ordinary. He's working even in the very worst of circumstances, and in the times he seems most incredibly silent. Here's the most important example of all. For just a moment, try to forget your problems with cancer, or your mortgage, or your problems with your business, or your marriage, as rough and all-consuming as those are. And by the way, God does care about them. They seem insurmountable, and God seems absent. But you and I both have a problem far more insurmountable than that. It goes by the name sin. It's the fact that we live in a world made by a completely holy God, and we are called to live in holiness, and we don't. And some of us know that we've made a mess of this thing called our lives, and we are therefore really close to the kingdom. Others of us think that we're doing just fine on our own efforts, thank you very much, and that's the really scary place to be, because it means we're not even ready to hear the good news of the gospel. Jesus came because we all have an enemy far worse than that mortgage, far worse than that business, far worse than that family, far worse than Haman. We have an enemy called our sin, and it demands nothing short of our death both physical and eternal. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And just like Mordecai and Esther, we try to deal with that enemy on our own. We try to build up some kind of positive account with God by doing good things, as if we can somehow do enough good to earn our way back. We try to use moral activity or obedience or what we've done or how much we've given or how faithfully we've attended church. We try to use those things as currency with God as if somehow that will beat our sin problem because we feel like we're the ones who have to fix it. But that's not the gospel. The bad news of the gospel is that sin owns us, that we are slaves to sin, completely incapable of leaving it, completely incapable of paying down that debt on our own. It will have you, and it will have me, and we can't get out of it. On our own, we are dead, just like the Jews would have been, but eternally. And trying to fix it by our own wiles is a useless, fruitless failure of a religious treadmill. But the very thing that turned human history is the fact that when it looked most like God was absent, he was working the most powerfully of all, 
If anyone ever looked like he was on his own, like he'd lost, it was none other than Jesus, God incarnate, God made man, when Jesus hung on a cross. Where was God? It was the worst injustice the world could have ever known. The one man who had never sinned, dying on a cross, cursed by God. Talk about injustice. Talk about it seeming like God was asleep at the wheel. Talk about things not looking right and seeming like it was all over. Jesus was dead, buried in the tomb. Evil and religious pride and hatred and power plays had won, and Satan celebrated. But when it most looked like God was absent is the very time he was most at work, as three days later our Lord Christ rose from the tomb, having conquered death, rising in victory, giving not merely the resurrection of his own body, but promising resurrection and salvation for all of us who would receive him as Savior and Lord. Because when it most looked like God was absent, when Jesus, the Son of God, was hanging on the cross, he was at his most powerful work ever, conquering the sin that demanded your and my blood. Now that was a contest of God's. And there is no God like our God because Jesus reigns and he is God the Son who rules all things at the right hand of the Father. And that is our God, our triune God who is ruling all things at every time. Life may look ordinary. It may look like he's not doing much, but the book of Esther reminds us and Christ's resurrection proves that God is working. Even when we can't see him, we can see him. So when you face the immediate crisis, I don't want to minimize it at all. Terrible things do come into our lives because we live in a fallen world. And it looks like God's forgotten about us. And it seems like the prayers are just bouncing back off the ceiling and like God must have found something better to do than listen to us. It'd be easy to lose our faith in such a setting, to think he's not there, or if he is, that he's not very good. But he's there and he's working, and he loves you. And he's shown that to you in the very greatest way possible at Calvary. And so we trust him now, even if it seems like he might not be paying attention, he is. He can. We can see him even when we can't see him. May God give us grace to do that in each of our lives. Let's pray together. God, our Father, please meet us in our need. Every one of us does have different challenges in different situations, but we are all tempted to think that you don't care, that you're not at work. Give us eyes of faith to see exactly how you are. And more than anything, give us eyes to see Jesus so we'd blessed, be blessed to know that you love us. Show us our Savior, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.